0: Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we worship and fellowship together. To find out more about Waterbrook, go to www.waterbrook.church. Isn't it great to sing of Jesus, just to spend time glorying in his name and being encouraged in the Lord? I hope your heart's already been encouraged in the Lord, and I trust that as we spend time in the gospel, Luke, that will happen for you again uh, this morning. On December the 25th, 1863, uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow got up and heard uh, the churches ringing their Christmas carols in the bells of the church. Now that might have been a normal thing, and it was, but for Longfellow, this was one of the saddest Christmases of his life And it was on that Sunday that he wrote uh, a poem uh, called "Christmas Bells," uh, which became a Christmas Carol that many of you know, which is "I heard the bells on Christmas Day their' old, familiar Carol's play. But for uh, Longfellow, um, it was a very existential moment for him, about eight months, nine months earlier. They had had a fire in his family. In fact, his wife's dress had caught on fire, and she was burnt so severely that she died. Longfellow uh, tried to rescue her, and um, in trying to rescue her, he uh, was burnt very seriously to the point that he had grown a beard just to cover the burn marks on his face. Uh, Just before Christmas, in the fall, his son had gone off to fight in the Civil War. And um, he had just got news on December 24th, the news that no parent wanted to get, that his son had been shot, son Charles had been shot through the shoulder, went through one shoulder and out the other shoulder. And uh, when he received the news, they told him that it was most unlikely that he would live. He did live. But um, Longfellow did not know that. So he got up on Christmas morning, and he heard the church bells ringing Christmas carols. And he wrote this poem. I want you to listen to it this morning, especially towards the end, because I think for many of you, even as we sing today, isn't it true that sometimes Christmas and the music of Christmas sounds directly in in contradiction to what we're experiencing. It it feels like the world is out of order. It feels like our hearts are out of order. It feels like the song doesn't ring true to our experience. And I hope this morning, if you've come into worship, and you've honestly sat here and said, I see everybody else singing, but that song is hard in my heart. I hope that you'll see Jesus sees you. And I hope that you will hear that God is for you. And I hope that you'll hear that the real message of Christmas is that you matter to God far more than you could ever imagine. But would you listen to um, Christmas Bells by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow? I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolves from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then he he hears in his mind the cannons of the war in the south. And he says, then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned. A peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was if, as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And I have the last two stanzas I want you to see. Up here, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Hope you'd never hear that carol again in the same way. So as Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's moving towards Jerusalem, steadfastly towards Jerusalem. And you and I need to see that the message of scripture all the way through is that God has sent Christ like an arrow to pierce the darkness with light. Christ has entered the world against every inclination in us. Four hundred years of silence since the last prophet had spoken. oppression over the under the Roman rulers, the people of Israel not hearing God, not seeing God, not having hope, and Jesus making his way towards Jerusalem, calling his disciples to follow him, and they are going to see that that in this journey of Jesus towards Jerusalem, it will look. You know, he'll, he'll come into Jerusalem and they'll start out by crying Hosanna, but they'll quickly change the chant to what? Crucify him. Crucify him. And as Jesus speaks to his disciples in this passage of Scripture that we've been studying, he's calling them to understand that they are the light that will pierce the darkness in his name. And he's calling them for robust strength against all the darkness and difficulty. That's why if you look at the very last verse in this section of Scripture, listen to the question that Jesus asks. It says at the end of it, after he tells them of this parable, he says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on earth? So here he's marching into the darkness. And that's what you and I need to see. The church is called on mission to penetrate the darkness. And there will be times, there are times, when the darkness is so thick you can't see in front of you. And the only thing you can see is the light of the gospel, the truth and the promises of God. And our mission is to follow Christ into a dark and difficult world knowing the victory has already been won and overcome darkness. We are called to overcome darkness with light, and we are to overcome power with weakness and unbelief with faith. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You and I are to see in this passage of Scripture that as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he means to encourage them. Look at verse 1. He says he told them a parable to the effect that they should always pray and never what? Lose heart. You know why Jesus does this? Because we lose heart and we stop praying. Or we pray and pray and pray and then we lose heart. And Jesus tells this parable so that we might see reality not from an earthly perspective, not from a world of injustice and darkness, but a heavenly perspective. Because that's how the, the, the announcement in Isaiah comes that the, the light is penetrated. Those living in darkness have seen a great light. And God has penetrated the darkness. But the hope of victory rests not in us, but God's zeal to advance his kingdom jesus is going to jerusalem jesus is going to triumph over sin and death his disciples will scatter here and there but he's calling them to steadiness in isaiah chapter 9 we like to at christmas time read that section of scripture for unto us what a child is born and unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time for that time on and forever. Isn't that great news? That king will reign in righteousness, friends. You may not see righteousness. But he is already king. And he is coming again. That second advent, when he comes again, righteousness will reign. And if you've experienced injustice recently, let me announce to you righteousness is coming. As certain as Jesus is king, righteousness is coming. And how do you know that? We often sing at Christmas time, wonderful counselor like we did today, everlasting Father. You know, mighty God, Prince of Peace. But I love verse seven. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, it says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's not your zeal. It's his zeal. It's not your ambition. It's his ambition. There will be justice from sea to shining sea because of Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus has been teaching his disciples, what is he doing here? You can see very clearly, he kind of puts it as Basic as it can be in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Look at the first verse. What does Jesus want for you and me? What does he want for his disciples? It says he told them a parable to the effect that they would always what? Pray and never lose heart. So as we've been going through Luke chapter, Luke, the last little couple chapters in the gospel of Luke, What um, Jesus has been teaching his disciples as he's been ministering to them is Jesus has been saying to the disciples, you know what, you as a people of God have been called into a special mission and privilege. And I've been saying to us as Waterbrook, Waterbrook, we need to be this people that God's called us to be. We're to be a forgiving community. We're to create a forgiving culture. That if you're struggling with sin, you're battling addiction, you're fighting for your family, you're fighting depression, those kind of things that sin and darkness have brought into the world, Waterbrook should be a place where you would think, i got to be with those people. Because i got to hear again of that Savior who they love and trust. We ought to be a Living in an atmosphere of thanksgiving. Remember the the lepers. The ten lepers go after Jesus has healed them. Only one comes back and gives thanks. But there ought to be a sense that week after week, as we're together, that against even though all the news is bad and over all all the uh, all the cultural atmosphere is cynical and antagonistic you ought to be able to walk into worship or interact with one another in the middle of the darkness and one of us say to one another is it not good that God is our God and Jesus is our Savior that he's reigning we ought to create an atmosphere of thanksgiving for the very reason that we might see life as it is not as the news portrays it not as the negativity declares it. We need to hear the glorious story of the gospel told over and over again by those who have been transformed by it and are humbled and grateful that it happens. We need to be a thankful people. Last week we saw that we need to have a kingdom first uh, focus, that what we are called to do as a people of God is to remind each other we're on mission. We are going into enemy territory. We are the light And this is a a, a kingdom where Christ goes into the darkest places and the most difficult places. And when we come back and we feel battle-worn and weary, we need to help each other up. Let us consider how to spur each other on to love and good deeds while it's still today, friends. That's the calling. I need you. You need me to say, yes, it's war. But let's play those Christmas bells one more time. God is not dead right justice will come we sing it we celebrate it we remind each other and we say let's go let's go let's go but in this passage of scripture jesus is saying this is what he's wanting he says i want you to pray tenaciously that's what he says i want you not to lose heart but to pray And if I was to say anything simply, Waterbrook, today, God is saying and he's calling us as a church to pray like we've never prayed before. If it gets darker, we get more determined. Right? If we we get hostility thrown at us, we get on our knees, we get on our face, and we fight the battle like this woman that Jesus points here. You see, losing heart kills our engagement in mission. And we all lose heart, right? Right? We all lose heart. We all get weary. We all get discouraged. We all get dismayed. But faith, will I find faith on earth? Faith keeps our prayers aflame for the mission of God. Listen to Tom Schreiner. He says, prayer is fundamentally not a duty, but a confession that strength comes from the Lord. The disciples cannot make it on their own that they need grace every day. Is that you? That's me. Can I ask you, what season are you in right now? I mean, really, as we've been singing and as we are worshiping, has your soul grown weary? Have you become discouraged? Have your prayers dried up? Have you asked the question, what good is it to pray anymore? We could hear Jesus say, at the end of time, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What if he comes today? I want to ask you this question, Waterbrook. If Christ comes back today, would he find faith at Waterbrook? That's how you're to hear this text. Do you believe that God will do what God has said he would do? In the person of his son. So let's, let's take a look at this scripture as we're being called to this determined pray. They're earnest praying together as the people of God. And I want you to see in this text of scripture he holds up an unusual character. An unjust judge and a woman. And we, we're meant to look at those two characters to learn something about prayer. And then he turns our, our focus away from those two to the just judge God himself. And that's what he's teaching us here, that you don't keep praying by looking at the injustice of the world. You pray and look at the justice of God in his son, Jesus Christ, and his mercy there. And that will keep you on your knees in prayer, hopeful when the world gets extremely dark. So look at verse 2 of uh, Luke 18. Let's consider these two characters, an unjust judge and, I love this, an unrelenting woman. Jesus said this parable so they wouldn't lose heart. And so they'd always pray, always pray. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. I want you to underline that because it gets repeated. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him. I love this lady. (laughs) And saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. I, I want you to stop there. That's an interesting thing. He doesn't say, see what the persistent widow does. He's pointing to her for sure. But what he actually says is he says, listen to what the unrighteous judge says. And that's why in the passage, two times he self-confesses. He confesses, one, that he what? He doesn't fear God. And secondly, he doesn't respect people. I just want you to realize that in the Bible, that is why there's no, inju- why there's no justice in the world. In the Bible, justice is motivated by two things, reverence for God, a respect for, the honor uh, God in a a fear of offending him, and a respect for humanity, a belief that people are made in the image of God and deserve to be uh, treated fairly. I just want you to stop and think, but that's how the Bible reads. So if you had any of that, you'd have more justice in the world. I mean, just a little bit more respect for God and fear of God, there'd be more justice little more love for humanity and respect for humanity there'd be more justice in the world the reason why there isn't is there isn't fear of god and there isn't respect for humanity that's a simple explanation of why the world has gone awry so i want you to look at luke chapter or sorry leviticus chapter 19 because what in effect jesus is saying is he says listen to this guy two times he repeats it i don't fear god and i have no respect for man and you know what it's like in the world you don't have to fear god in this world you don't have to respect people in this world, and you can still be in a position of power. That's, that's what's going wrong in this situation. No fear of God, no respect for man. And in Leviticus, what, uh, what, um, and, and I want you to think about this too, this is affecting most this widow. And in the text in Leviticus, uh, the law is written to protect the outsider and the widow and the, and the, the downcast the weak, and the vulnerable. God is jealously protective of them. And so the way it's summed up is the way that Jesus sums up the, the, the law altogether. He says the law has two commands. What are the two commands? You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what this man does not do. So listen to Leviticus chapter 19 verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Why? You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. No injustice for the poor or the rich. He says, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? I am the Lord. And so as we come to this text of Scripture, and this man says, I don't fear God, and I don't respect man, he's essentially thumbing his nose at the law, thumbing his nose at the lordship of God. He doesn't care. He doesn't believe. He's like Pilate when Jesus says, everyone who's of the truth, Believes in me or listens to me, and Pilate goes, "What? <sighs> what is truth?" He holds Christ's life, he says, in his hands, and of course, Christ responds, "says You couldn't do anything unless my Father granted it to you." You see the perspective of Jesus; he sees it on a higher plane. This woman that we are pointed to by Jesus is a vulnerable person. She's a widow. She has no defender. She has nobody who has her back. She's being victimized in some way. We're not told why. And I believe the reason why we're not told why is so that you and I might see in this woman our victimization in an unjust world or the victimization of others. We don't know why it is, but that's how the world goes under sin. It's how the world has been. Like Mary in the Christmas story, she's a nobody. She's an outcast. She's forgotten, but man, does she cry out for justice. A zeal for justice and a fire for for making things right was in her heart. I just want to stop and say this. This should encourage some of you. Some of you here today know what it's like to be voiceless and violated, and you don't have to be quiet against this. You have a place to go. You have a God to seek, a face to seek. Thank God. And so I want to give a definition of prayer because we have this woman against this, uh, this un- unjust judge being presented to us. And she presses on and presses in. And so I want to say this woman is an example to us of what prayer is like because she fears God and she fears men. And prayer is an act of defiance against the darkness. She is absolutely defiant despite the fact that she is disregarded and unvalued. Listen to Tom Schreiner again. He says, the judge, however, since he does not fear God or respect people, does not care what the Torah thinks. The widow, however, is, and we've been debating on the pronunciation of this between services, I would say indefatigable because I have some French effect on my life, but I was told it is indefatigable. I disagree with that, but that's, um, anyway, I wanted to use that word because that's what I want us to think about and be. She regularly petitions him for justice. My dear friends, just think about this. Here is this woman, this 13-year-old girl that the angel Gabriel comes And says, you are going to bear the Messiah. And she's sitting there with the nation of Israel having been not hearing God's voice for 400 years. Now the angel Gabriel shows up and Mary uh, stands up and goes, you are a God of justice. You're on behalf of the weak. You stand up on and she rejoices. My soul, my soul magnifies. She rejoices in the justice and mercy of God coming into the world. And I want to say, isn't it great that a 13-year-old can stand up for herself? Stand up because of God and and rejoice in the justice and mercy of God. And I want to say to all you young ladies that are here today, you stand up with a strong voice for the Lord. You do not have to be silent in an unjust world. You need to hear that God is on the side of those who seek justice. And righteousness. But you know what's really interesting in Luke's gospel? We start out with Mary, who's like 13, who the angel Gabriel comes to, and then we go to later on Anna, who's 84. And I want you to listen to Anna as she has been in the temple in her old age. Her husband died long before. Listen to Luke 2:36 uh, 36 to 38. There was a prophetess, uh, Anna, the, fa- the daughter of Phanuel, Of the tribe of Asher she was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to, who, to all who were awaited, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I love this. She's, been, she's 84, and she has not stopped praying against the darkness. And then Jesus shows up. Can you imagine that day? And she says, I told you. I told you. The redemption of the Lord is coming. Talk about faith. Jesus said, I, I'm telling you this parable so that you pray and do not lose heart. And I, I want to say, not only should a 13-year-old girl believe in the promises of God and stand up against all darkness with confidence and clarity, but an 84-year-old woman should do the same thing. Right? In the, in the culture, no voice. In the culture, ignored, But she was not ignored by God. Her her prayers and her cries outward. God was not indifferent to her. God was hearing. We are meant to hear in Luke's gospel that God heard her prayers and her crying against the darkness. And it's hard for us to imagine that the the whole range of biblical history is consummated in the coming of Jesus Christ. Yes, God is hearing the cries of all the oppressed down through the ages, all who have been treated unjustly. He's been hearing all of that. But he's been hearing Anna. And he knew Mary. And he knows you. That's the difference between God and this unjust judge. So can I at least start out and say, we're to look at this woman and say, we need an indefatigable group of prayer warriors who defy the darkness on their knees. That's what God's calling for here. That's what we need. Waterbrook, we don't do anything. Let's do this. Let's fight the darkness on our knees in prayer. So now what Jesus does is he immediately goes and he turns our view away from the unjust judge and this woman to God. He turns us and he shows us two characteristics of God. Look at this passage of scripture. We are to consider the fact that God is exactly the opposite of the unjust judge. Look at verse uh, seven. He says, after he says, hear what the unrighteous judge says, he says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night. Let's just pause there. What's the answer to the question? This is a rhetorical question. Jesus is saying to his disciples, well, God not. This guy, this unjust judge, gives in because this woman doesn't give in. She's tireless and unrelenting. And that's an unjust judge who doesn't fear God and man. You have a just God. Go to him. Will he not respond? Listen to what he says. Will he delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them uh, speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What's Jesus saying here? He says, when the Son of Man comes, justice will roll down from the mountains and fill from sea to sea. The earth will be filled with his justice. He's coming. He says, on that day, will anybody be believing, still standing, fighting indefi- indefatigably? I'm going to use that word out of defiance. There's my defiance today. <laughs> Before I die, I'll say it without stuttering, you know. But that's what we're meant to be seeing. Jesus is saying, when I come back, it'll be, I'm coming back quickly. And on that day, it'll be worth it. And on that day, you will see it. And so he says, Will God not bring justice to his elect? And I want to look just at that phrase, bring justice to his elect. Because those words, justice and elect, declare that God is the opposite of the unjust judge. That that God will God bring justice? God is just. It's the opposite. And God has an elect, which is a declaration one, that God that God is God reveres God, he's just, and secondly, the elect, God has mercy on people. That's that's the declaration there. He is the opposite of the unjust judge. And let's worship that God, this will sound weird to you, God fears God, and God respects men. God loves men. God loves people, humanity. He cares for them. So let's begin with this because I know this is a weird way to say it because this man didn't fear God and I want to say God fears God. I don't mean that God fears God like he's afraid of himself. The word fear means revere and God acts justly because God is dedicated to himself as a just God. It doesn't, I'm going to say it doesn't matter because it does matter. It doesn't determine the activities of God that we're fallen sinners. What determines God's activities is that God is a just judge and God will be faithful to himself. And that's what drives our praying. That's why we don't lose heart so let me point out what it means that God is just and God fears God which I mean reveres God number one God is absolutely up committed to upholding the integrity of his name if God doesn't deal with an unjust world justly God is being unjust he won't let it happen what's at stake is his own name what's at stake is his own honor and that's why when you hear the Old Testament Uh, writers or the psalmists or the prophets or the people praying they will often not say God you know I've been good this week I've tried hard I'm really nice they know they're not deserving of it they're not saying because of us they say do it for your sake over and over and that's what you and I that's that's why you and I can pray with zeal because when I get on my knees and I pray for justice in the world I'm not arguing that I'm deserving I'm arguing that he's deserving so listen to some of these passages. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 7. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. Isn't that great that you can be a sinner and pray to God and ask God to have mercy and bring justice even though you don't deserve it? Even though you have fallen short, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Listen to Jeremiah 14, 21. Do not spurn us for your namesake do not dishonor your glorious throne remember and do not break covenant with us psalm 79 9 help us O god of our salvation why for the glory of your name deliver us and atone for our sins why for your namesake psalm 106 8 yet he saved them why for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power isn't that good news God fears God. God reveres God. God honors God. You can go to God and say, God, you're a just God. This is an unjust world. But for your namesake intervene. Not, not because I deserve it, but I need it. We desperately as a people need it. God is absolutely committed to the integrity of his own name. Secondly, God is absolutely committed to upholding the integrity of his word. This is another thing about praying with absolute determination. God will keep his promises. If God doesn't break his, keep his promises, God is untrue. God is unjust. God is, God is um, unfaithful to himself. Here's the great thing about the Bible. The Bible says when God makes a promise, he never breaks it. When God gives his word, he always keeps it. And when you get on your knees, you just plead the promises of God. God had promised that he would send a Messiah. Anna was going to fight <laughs> to the death to see that come. She was determined. She knew that day because God had promised. Listen to Jeremiah. You know, because often we think, man, I can't do this. I'm not up to it. I'm going against the darkness. The odds are against me. And, and, I'm, I, and, and, and the only thing that will help you is to realize that God himself had said he would deliver his people so in jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4 the word of the lord came to jeremiah saying before i formed you in the womb i knew you and before you were born i consecrated you and i appointed you to be a prophet to the nations jeremiah says ah lord god i don't know how to speak i am only a youth and the lord said to me do not say i am only a youth for to who, to all to whom I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Now imagine Jeremiah hearing those words. Because he was thrown into a pit. He was tortured for being a prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations and lamented. What did he have to appeal to when he was overwhelmed by a world of injustice by his own people? The promise of God the promise of God. In fact, at the end of that initial passage in Jeremiah chapter one, the the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, said, Jeremiah, what do you see? He said, I see an almond branch. And then it says, then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, listen to this, for I am watching over my word to perform it. You like that line? Every promise that God has ever made, he is watching over it to make sure it's executed in Jesus Christ. And that ought to help us on our knees. Plead the promises of God. Be absolutely determined against the darkness. God, you have said it. You have said you'll never leave me nor forsake me. Plead the promises of God. Be tireless in doing that. And, and lastly, God is absolutely committed to upholding the worth of his son you ask yourself how will i know god will keep his promises and the answer is the story of christmas that god did not withhold his own son but he sent him into the world and he sent his son into the world that he might redeem you and i and paul says in romans if god didn't spare his own son how will he not with him answer every other promise that he's made how will he not be gracious my dear friends when we sing of jesus when we see jesus coming when we watch him walk diligently in the gospel of luke to the cross of calvary penetrating the darkness with his death you and i are supposed to go god keeps his promises and for jesus sake he'll keep them all that's how the scriptures read john the apostle john writes in first john i'm writing you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake who's him jesus Jesus died for your sins. We plead the cross. He finished the work on the tree. We have nothing more to accomplish. And God will keep every promise he's made because if he breaks his promise to us that he's given in the word, he has broken his covenant with Jesus. We're gonna take communion this morning. And when we take communion, Jesus is telling us, I made agreement with God on your behalf. Every promise has to be fulfilled. At God's bidding. is that good news? Is God just? Absolutely. He is absolutely just. But I need to tell you, he is not only just, he's merciful. He cares about people. Look at this text of scripture. Jesus asked the question, and will God, will not God give justice to who? His elect. Now, you and I, when we hear the word elect, we need to hear what the word elect means in the Bible. And the the word elect in the Bible always points us to God's merciful disposition towards his people. Always points us in that direction. So let me show you what the doctrine of election means. Number one, God's love for his people is absolutely unconditional. That's what you should hear when you heard the word elect. It wasn't because you were deserving. It wasn't because you moved towards God. We We did not first love God. God first loved us listen to what the scriptures declare in the old testament God said to Israel it wasn't because you were more in number than the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you you got that together God's setting his love upon you you were the fewest of all peoples we are told at the beginning that God's election is not because of us but because of him John 15 listen to this because it it goes directly to prayer John 15, 18, you did not chose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Isn't that great? What we're being told there is Jesus said, it wasn't you that chose me. I came and got you. I chose you to be. And so when you get on your knees and pray, you're not asking God, I did A, B, C, and D, so do this. You just say, Jesus chose me and called me to go serve him. He loved me first. That's, that's what we have to start out with in this passage. It's not conditional because so much of our praying in the darkness, isn't that the hard thing about being in the dark? When we get in an unjust world, there's a nagging, guilt-ridden voice that comes back and said, yeah, but you're not perfect, yeah, But you did a lot of things wrong. Yeah, and suddenly you lose heart, and suddenly you stop praying. Stop that. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about his setting his love upon you. Secondly, this doctrine of election says God's heart towards his people is incredibly merciful. It's actually interesting. In Romans chapter 9, there's one of these very controversial texts. Now talk about the doctrine of election. But you and I need to understand, in the doctrine of election being taught in Romans 9, Paul is, of course, grieving over his fellow Jews. And Paul says God could have shown wrath. He could have just shown wrath. But God had a heart of mercy. And God chose to show mercy to us. So listen to Romans 9. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, and make known his power has endured with much patience ves- vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he called not from the Jews only but also the Gentiles and he indeed says to Hosea there were not they those who were not my people I've called my people and who and her who was not beloved I've called beloved and in the very place where it was said of them you are not my people they'll be called the sons of the living God. Now that's what he's saying. There are people that don't belong to me that will belong to me and the only explanation is this, that not only did God see our sin and love us unconditionally, God saw our misery and delivered us from it. That's why Romans chapter 12 says, therefore I urge you brothers, not in view of God's wrath, not in view of God's sovereignty, I in view of God's mercy. Aren't you glad that's what the of election? If you're, if, you're, if you're miserable here, As a child of God, he sees it, and he cares about it. He's not like that unjust judge. That widow was right in God's view. Mary was right in God's purview. And God cared about the crying. God acted in in the middle of the darkness. And you can know that today, too. Now, here's a really bad last point I want to make on this because I didn't know how to say it because there's no vocabulary to say it well. God's love for his people is mind. Blowing or mind-bogglingly liberal. And what I mean by that is it is absolutely incredible. When we say that God chose us to be his people, he is taking us from the pit of sin and guilt and shame, and he is putting us seated with Christ as royalty, as his people forever. Isn't that a marvelous thing? You don't think you matter to God? My dear friends, he sees you just like he sees his son. And listen to Paul or Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Friends, do not listen to this with a cold and detached heart this morning. Personalize this. This is you. In Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what you should be thinking. You're a child of the king. You are a royal priesthood. The God of the universe calls you his own. If, if that's who you are, get your mind in that place. It's really hard to struggle in prayer if you actually believe that's who you are. You can come boldly into God's presence. My dear friends, you can know that today. How do you know that you are a child of God? How do you know that God views you this way, that he loves you and owns you? Here's the simple answer. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you thrown yourself on him for your forgiveness of sins and are you trusting in him? It says in the Bible, to those who received him and believed on his name, to them he has given the right to be called the children of God. Friends, you can know that today. That should give us boldness against the darkness. If you're facing injustice, you are God's child. Hear this, not the judge. Not what the world says. Hear what God says. He is faithful to His Son. Why? Because His Son shed His blood for you. Friend of ours, uh, Lancia Smith. A few weeks ago, her son died. She's a good photographer, and uh, she's a very good writer. And so, this I just want you. I'm going to read to you just what Lancia wrote in the darkness deep darkness of her son just dying just a few weeks ago. This is what she just wrote. The great story of God and human history is still being written. Each of our lives add a line to it and will until it's fully written down to the closing exclamation mark. All the great stories have elements of suffering, tragedy, hardship, and circumstances that seem insurmountable. That's why faithfulness, courage, goodwill, and perseverance are the character traits we cheer for in every hero and companions in the stories we love. There are crushing blows in life, things outrageously unfair and unjust, things simply heartbreaking, But these things are not the whole story. Not now and not in the final end. No matter what we see in our own lives or the lives of others, we don't see the full story or its fulfillment. The theater of our story lays beyond the horizon of earth and time. And this is my great comfort. The great story in which we are privileged to play a part has the very best of ending you imagine writing that right after your son has died? My dear friends, this story, God loves you. God is just. God will keep all his promises. God has sent his son into the world. Will he find faith when he comes back to this earth? My dear friends, I hope so. That you are trusting him and looking to him because when he be- comes back, it will be worth it all. It will have the very best of endings. This does not end in tragedy. Because we have a just God who loves his people in Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that? That's the good news. Waterbrook, this is what I'm charging with today. With that news, we should fight against the darkness with everything we have on our knees. Will you do that with me? Let's do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to communion and we consider the cross, we realize... If God is for us, who can be against us? And we live in a broken world, in a dark world, in a dismal world, often where we grow discouraged and lose heart. And Jesus stops and he looks at his disciples. He's going to the cross and he not only speaks to them, Father, he speaks to me and he says, don't stop, don't lose heart, keep praying. This is going to end in glory. And Jesus kept going because he knew his death. His suffering, the worst injustice in the world, Heavenly Father, would mean my salvation. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll discourage those who are losing heart, that you'll encourage them, sorry, that those who are losing heart, that you'll give fresh grace today. And I pray, dear God, here at Waterbrook, as a church family, you would rise, raise up a group of people like this widow that we are absolutely determined to lay hold of the promises of God and see the light penetrate the darkness. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about Waterbrook Christian Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed day.